You son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. Ezekiel was called into that role of being a watchman, a watchman before God's people, for God's people, but watching God's word, the things that God revealed and declaring that word to the people. Always reminded that what God declares, what he sets out in his word is things as they really are. And so the witness that Ezekiel was to offer was to the truth that eternal truth of God. And in particular, he was in declaring that to call the people to repentance, to turn from anything that was not of God and to return to him. It's all in the context of God's clear heart for his people to be reconciled. We're in Ezekiel 33. We've got just a snippet of that passage. If we read on a couple of verses we would hit words that are really familiar to us who come out of Anglican prayer book tradition, but words about God's desire not to destroy the wicked, but that the wicked might turn. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked may turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? The declaration of God's word, the being in that watchman's role, is to declare both God's judgment on the state of the world, on his people, on things that are going on in their hearts, in their minds, in their actions, but also to declare his mercy and his desire to forgive, his desire that they be reconciled. I've often commented on St. John's account of that first encounter with Jesus and his apostles post-resurrection in the upper room, where the first priority is to set before them this way of dealing with sin. He breathes on them, anoints them with his Holy Spirit to that end that if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. It's not simply declaring his mercy and his forgiveness, though that's immensely important. It's also to declare those times where there isn't forgiveness, where there are things to be dealt with. Sin must be called sin. If things are not identified as problems, they can't be dealt with. We're back to that question of, well, you know, what sins can't be forgiven? We know that Jesus talks about an unforgivable sin, calls it that sin against the Holy Spirit. seems to me that nothing cannot be forgiven. There's nothing that we can do, nothing that we can be about that God not only cannot forgive, but that Jesus did not deal with on the cross. And I've come back to this with some of you. I I know over time in thinking about sins when we struggle, well, how does God forgive me for what I've done? Well, the very clear word that Jesus took upon himself on the cross, the sins of the whole world, all that had been, all that ever would be. Well, then how could something not be forgiven? From God's end, things are dealt with. From our own end, we need to acknowledge the sin. We need to confess it. We need to repent of it in order to receive that forgiveness, in order to receive the healing. 
So where can things not be forgiven? Where do they need to be declared retained? Well, in those places where we refuse to call sin, sin. Many of us are really conscious that we live in a day where more and more lies hold an upper hand. It's stunning sometimes just how blatant the lies get to be. You know, often people in positions of high authority, whether in our land or some other, will stand up and say, well, I never said, I never called someone, whatever. And in the background, someone is playing the, the tapes of that person saying those very things, of him calling those very names. And after a while, though, when he stands up and says over and over again, I never did that, I never said that, people start to think, well, how could he keep saying that if it isn't true? The press are not taking him to task. We begin to believe more and more lies. I don't have to go far in pointing out all kinds of other ones, even just in the nature of human beings are, when we can no longer answer a simple question like, what is a woman? Because of the fear about what the repercussions might be of the answer. But in such a world, things so easily get turned around, where we find ourselves repenting of things of which we ought to be giving thanks to God, and we exult in things of which we ought to be repenting. When we do not call sin, sin, when we do not put things in the light of truth, we have that problem with receiving forgiveness, with being reconciled. But God gives to his ministers some authority to deal with those things. Ezekiel, you might remember at his time, was in exile with his people. When I think about the ministry being given after the resurrection to the apostles, well, I think of the priestly ministry of dealing with sins, that apostolic authority given to the successors of the apostles. Ezekiel was a priest. Yes, of the old covenant, but at a time when he couldn't practice much of the the cult of the Old Testament priest, there was no temple in which to offer the sacrifice, whether of the animal sacrifices or the incense, the, the offerings of meal, of drink offerings. There was nowhere to make that atonement. And yet always the ministry of the priest is first and foremost not the outward offering, though that's an essential part, but is the inward immolation of himself before God. Immolation, the burning up, the burnt offering. The priest is first and foremost the sacrifice to be gathered into the Lord's own offering for his people. Ezekiel might not have been a priest in the temple. He might have been a priest of the old covenant, But his life is so wholly given over to the Lord that there are the glimpses of the Christ himself that we see in him. Go back and read his book, that address, Son of Man, that is accorded to him, that Jesus picks up as the way to address him. When he speaks of the visions that he is given again and again, we see the ministry of Christ unfolding, the valley of dry bones the temple out of which the living waters begin to flow. A priestly ministry, the binding and the loosing, the declaration of God's judgment, of God's truth, 
of the times where the sin is forgiven, of the times when things need to be addressed. One of the interesting things, though, is that while it's a priestly ministry, and there are those who are set aside for that, in Old Testament and New, the Lord addresses his people as a holy nation, as a royal priesthood, kingdom of priests and a holy nation back in Exodus. First Peter 2, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, that you may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're members of the body of Christ, and Christ is the great high priest. We are all called to be part of his priestly ministry. No, not in the unique sense that those who are consecrated to be priests might be, but to be those who share the light and the truth of God, who set out before others that ministry of reconciliation, his desire to gather all hearts to his own, to see sin dealt with. But to go to Second Corinthians chapter 5, where St. Paul speaks in quite blunt terms about that, saying, you know, we've been reconciled to God in Christ, and he has entrusted to us that ministry of reconciliation. He uses the language of being ambassadors for Christ. Kind of interesting in its way. You think right away about an ambassador and what an ambassador is. It's one who represents his country, her country, into another nation. But the embassy is that little bit of sovereign territory within another world. And there is represented the culture, the language, the priorities, the principles, the the food, the whole culture of that other kingdom or that other country within a foreign land, if you will. We are called to be those who stand in the kingdom of heaven, who radiate that life, who bear witness to that life wherever we find ourselves. There's also the word for ambassador. It doesn't always get translated that way, but the verb to be an ambassador is presbuo, and the root there is presbuteros, that comes to us as presbyter. And when we talk about priestly ministry, we talk about the presbyteral ministry. It's a ministry of elders. It's a ministry of oversight. But we're all called, again, to have some share in that. And this isn't so much about an upfront Authority. It doesn't mean that we should all be crowding in up front on a Sunday morning. It does mean, though, in going about our daily lives, that we are to understand that this ministry of reconciliation is something that is entrusted to us all to be sharing, to be bringing to bear something of the light of God's truth and his love, to be walking in that light, to be living there, makes it really important that within the body of Christ, within the family of the church, that we be growing in that unity in Christ. The gospel today has one of those really practical pictures of some of how you go about that and the importance of the same. We get a little bit more of it next week. Think about today carrying on into that when we hear about the importance of forgiving being forgiven and forgiving in order that we might receive the fullness of that forgiveness. But where Jesus says, if if you have a brother who sinned against you, 
it matters that there's brokenness in the body. It matters that there's something that breaks up the oneness, the unity we're to have in Christ. And he's going to come back to that at the end. There's spiritual power in being one in Christ. Well, what's the other side of that? If we are divided, that's a demonic foothold in our midst. It's something that undermines the spiritual authority that is there, the light going forward. We tend to hide things then. If your brother has sinned against you, go and talk to him. Talk to him. Show him where where there's been the offense. Presumably you do that in real spirit of love and in gentleness. It's incumbent upon you when you do that, that if the brother says, oh, please forgive me, that you actually are ready to forgive him, to be reconciled, and not to say, well, you bloody well better be sorry of what you've done, and to hold that in between. But then he says he might not listen to you. He might not pay any attention. We'll get two or three others. There's something really significant about that because, again, he'll come back to that. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. When two of you agree on anything, here on earth it will be done in heaven. Two or three others, so that you talk together. Again, not to gang up, but really just so that things are brought into the light. Hey, it's even possible that when I go and say, you know, you have done this to me, and I don't know why you won't recognize it, that when the others come in, they might say, um, well, Doug, actually, you're the one who stepped over the line. If you'd done that to me, I would have done that to you as well. I might need to listen to that and to, to be reconciled through that. But if they don't listen to you, then bring it before the wider community, the church. Well, if the brother won't hear then, let him be as a Gentile or a tax collector. And it's one of those words that I know has been misheard because there are communities that at such a time disfellowship. They, they shun the person who is on the outs now. And I don't think that Jesus was saying, turn your back on the person, have nothing to do with him. Treat him as a Gentile and a tax collector. How did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? Look at him. He's eating with the sinners and the tax collectors. And he goes on to talk about God's heart for the lost. Is he saying, turn your back on that person? I don't think so. I think he's saying, stop treating him as a brother who ought to know better. If he will not be reconciled, you need to go back to square one. You need to share the gospel. You need to treat him with the care that you would treat someone who doesn't know the things of the kingdom. Spend the time. Do the prayer. All of the things aside, go in, and maybe it's good when you're talking to a brother or sister anytime, go in with prayers to disarm the devil before you go in. When you're talking to those in the world, it's a good way to begin the conversation. The disarming of the devil in yourself, but also in the other so that the truth will be heard, that things will be brought into the light. St. Paul actually writes in 1 Corinthians, at one point he says, "Ah, when I told you to, to not have anything to do with the, the one who is immoral, I wasn't saying the one in the world, 
Because if that were to happen, you'd have to put yourself as out of the world. I'm talking about within the fellowship. Deal with it in the body. Of course you're going to deal with immoral people out there. I mean, you deal with them in a different way. But then down to this last part of things, where Jesus talks about this whole business of coming together in the two and the three. If you agree together, well, two of us could agree on just about anything and everyone else might disagree and I, I don't think that heaven is going to be bound by that. I think it's in the spirit of what follows this agreement in the name of Christ, which I've said before, and you may all have in mind, to do things, to gather, to pray, to minister in the name of Jesus doesn't mean simply that we add his name to our prayers, that we put his name over the door as to what kind of a gathering this is, but that we actually enter into his character, that we share his heart and mind and will, that we submit ourselves to that. Because there's a confidence if we really give ourselves over to him, then he draws us into, well, what he prayed for. John 17, the unity that he has, that oneness with the Father, that they may also be one, that we might enter into that. And it's not just that we agree that we share a common position, but that we enter together into that light and into his truth, that we submit ourselves before that truth, that we give ourselves to walking in that way. None of us is there all the time. We're not to feel like we shouldn't say anything unless our lives are perfect, but we should never say anything without first standing in his light, opening our hearts in that desire to be reconciled, sometimes weeping over the sins of the world and the lack of unity within the body. In fact, because Teresa is giving witness here, let me point you back to the chapter from which the words are drawn this time. If you go and read Matthew 18 from the beginning, you actually find that it begins with the pride of the apostles. They're arguing over who's greatest in the kingdom, and Jesus puts the little one in their midst and talks about the importance of being small if you would be great in the kingdom, but also warns about doing anything that would cause these little ones to fall away and speaks of the immense seriousness of that. We do have a calling to walk in the truth, to bear witness to God's truth, to not let the little ones go astray. And he goes on to say that if in your life, if there is the hand or the foot or the eye that causes you to sin, and that's bound up with the sin that would lead others astray, well, get rid of it. Pluck out the eye, cut off the hand, cut off the foot. Better to enter life maimed or having only one eye than with all your parts in place to be cast into hellfire. But he does it in the context of speaking of the importance of that bearing witness, of taking care of the little ones, and goes on actually then to give us again the lost sheep and the man who goes to seek the one of the hundred who has gone astray. He points to the little ones and their importance before God, but we might think, when he says that the one who won't be reconciled is to be treated as 
one who isn't a brother, who doesn't know these things, he's also saying as one who has not yet become that infant in the kingdom who needs to be taught from square one. When Jesus told the parable of the lost sheep, he wasn't talking about just little children who go astray. He was talking about the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as we move on following him in ministry, we know that it also applies to all those lost ones, all of those created in the image and likeness of God who have wandered away, have fallen into ignorance and darkness, who need to see the light of his truth, who need to be called into that way of reconciliation in Christ, to be restored to life in him. Ezekiel was called to be a watchman. Some of us know in our own lives a very distinct call at times to be likewise those who would pay attention to what he's revealing, to bear witness of that to others. won't always be an easy way, but it's not about us and popularity before men. It's about bearing witness to God's truth opening up the heart of the Father, and in that heart is that earnest desire not to destroy the wicked, but that the wicked might be turned. Where even the apparent punishments of God, the consequence of sin, is not meant to lead one into the darkness, but to remind one of the need to come into the light. All of this might make us consider our firm and faithful witness in the world for the sake of all the little ones, all of those who are lost in the darkness who need to come into the light of Christ, to be reconciled through his cross to him. These things matter to our Lord and ought to matter to those who are gathered into the new life in him. When we are reconciled in him, when we come together In that unity in Christ, there is spiritual power. Where the sin divides us, then that power is undermined. The devil gets a foothold. Let's pray in power to disarm him. The precious blood of the Lamb be poured out upon us, upon those others with whom we live, with whom we work, to whom we minister that God's kingdom may come, his will be done in our lives and in all the world. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked may turn from his way and live. 